Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore the parameters and jurisdiction of the First Amendment, as well as how we can better navigate issues and challenges involving speech in digital spaces. My guest is Latanat, First Amendment Fellow at the Freedom Forum and Deputy Director of Policy at State Voices. have this conversation with you today because there's so much going on, uh, people talking about First Amendment this, First Amendment that, you're violating my rights, and it feels as if there's some confusion around exactly what the First Amendment does and doesn't cover and what it actually means and represents. And also, because a lot of this is happening in digital spaces, and I know you have uh, an expertise in this area, I would love to sort of hash this out. So, I would love to start by just kind of establishing the jurisdiction of the First Amendment. Like, what exactly does it cover and in what context? So the First Amendment prevents the government from censoring our speech or punishing us for our speech. So that means it applies to any agent of the government, and that can be federal, state, local officials. Uh, it can include police officers and public school teachers. But it does not apply to private individuals. The First Amendment doesn't say anything about, um, say, your book club kicking you out for not reading the book or for criticizing everybody else's choices. That's just a matter between private individuals. What about when it comes to, say, broadcasts, radio and TV? I know that there are some maybe gray area because obscenity laws apply to broadcast outlets and may not apply in the same way to digital outlets or newspapers. Broadcast TV and radio are special uh, in a way that no other mediums are because each broadcast channel, um, whether it's radio or television, it's a frequency on a spectrum. That means it's a limited resource. There are only so many channels that are available to broadcast on. So the way that uh, the U.S. government set this up was they basically said, we own these channels. We lease them out to different producers of content, different stations to use them. But because we're actually like leasing out this very limited resource, we're going to ask you to, to comply with a few things. And one of them, as you said, is uh, no obscenity, especially during hours that children listen to the radio or television. A few decades ago, the Fairness Doctrine, where Broadcast stations said that that violated their First Amendment rights. They were forced to present a point of view that they didn't want to present. But the way the government justified it was, okay, if these channels are a limited resource and we are allowing you to use them, and for some people, this is the only news that they will get. This is back when there were three channels and there wasn't much else. Um, then this might be the only opportunity for someone to hear both sides. And so that's what you're going to do. So that was the fairness doctrine. It doesn't exist anymore, but there's, like I said, with the obscenity laws, there's still more control that the government can exert over broadcast media. Now, if you look at something like cable or especially the internet, there's not a limited number of channels. Um, I'd say like with the internet, there are like infinite numbers of ways that you can get your voice out. And so um, that kind of rationale would not, never apply to like digital spaces in the way that it did for broadcasts. So digital spaces, we're hearing a lot right now um, in, in our sort of fractured or polarized political context of people saying things and then sort of almost like when we were kids calling base, like First Amendment, <laughs> First Amendment, don't violate my First Amendment rights. What is going on there? And what should we actually understand? Well, that's where you run into that, uh, that first rule about what's the jurisdiction of the First Amendment. Keeps the government from censoring your speech. Has nothing to do with private individuals or private businesses. So if you were on Facebook and you uh, post something and Facebook takes it down because it violates like one of its community standards, not a First Amendment issue. It's still important uh, if 
you have like a major social media platform that just is not allowing a certain type of content. That's like a good discussion for us to have, but it has nothing to do with the First Amendment. Well, it does in a way because it's Facebook's First Amendment right to set its own policies of what it'll allow on its site. Oh, that's fascinating. So actually the First Amendment would come down on the side of the corporation, of, of Facebook, of Twitter, uh, because they they have a right to express how they want to run their company. Is that right? They have some rights about how they want to operate their company, although there's plenty of laws like antitrust and corporate laws that will apply there. But when it comes to speech, it's it's more like, well, you have this place where content is posted. When Trump was president, he would often talk about like, well, we're going to make them do this and allow that content, um, which is incredibly difficult to do because basically you are telling this company, this business, like that you have to allow these kinds of speech. Once you start telling like a private individual or entity what kind of speech they can and can't allow, that's that's usually getting into First Amendment violating territory. That would actually be a violation of the First Amendment to tell a company what it has to say or what it can allow or not allow people to say. Right. Um, another thing I should probably mention, which just a fun fact. So the First Amendment, it protects like speech. It also protects your right to hear speech and it protects your right to not speak. That means that like you can't be forced by the government to say something that you don't want to say. Also, doesn't the First Amendment encompass the idea of getting a lot of speech out there so that the speech we want to hear will rise to the top and the speech we don't want to hear, we can push back on. Uh, that's the theory of the First Amendment. It's not necessarily my theory, but it's the marketplace of ideas theory. What's your theory on the First Amendment? You know, the idea of the marketplace of ideas is, like you said, we're, we're going to get all the ideas out there and the best ideas will rise to the top, which is interesting. It's like, why would anybody think that? We're human beings. That's not really how we work. Right, um, right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I think when you think of it as a marketplace, you wouldn't allow someone to like sell poisoned apples in your marketplace, you know, and you start to think about quality control when you think of a market. But I mean, my theory of why free speech is important and why we should have it is that basically speech isn't always valuable. Sometimes it's offensive or terrible or stupid or whatever, but our rights are all like intertwined with each other's rights. Um, they're indivisible. So if the government is to take away your right to speak freely in any way, that will eventually apply to me too. It's not like you can make one law that just applies to the people that you dislike. Once you give that power away, once you give a governmental entity more power over one person's speech, that's just something that we all live with. So that's the whole thing. Like, even if you hate someone and hate everything they have to say, there's a self-interested aspect in actually protecting their right to speak. Yeah. And that reminds me, it's one of my favorite quotes. And I I, uh, I, I forgot the name of the, I disagree with everything you have to say, but I defend to the death your right to say it. Evelyn Hall, right? I love that quote. And that gets at this idea of if you're harmed, then I'm harmed. If you, they come for you, they're coming for me. You were talking about the marketplace of ideas. And I think we can both agree it's, it's generally the sort of the loudest or the brashest voices that get the attention and not necessarily the best right. ideas. So I wanted to get at this idea of quality control. I think to some people or to a lot of people, it feels scary or dangerous to talk about limiting our rights um, in any way, shape or form. But when it comes to the First Amendment, there are already limits. We brought up obscenity, incitement. Um, and then I think about this with any right. You've got to balance rights against each other. My First Amendment right might violate your Fourth Amendment right, whatever it may be. I wonder how we can help infuse that into the conversation we're having right now about the First Amendment, which feels very black and white sometimes, or it feels like there's a little bit of a misstep in understanding. We should probably acknowledge that everyone's a bit hypocritical about speech, you know, like regardless of where anybody is on the political spectrum. But 
we generally think that the speech that you love, the speech that you, you think is important, you think that that's protected and the speech that you don't like, even if you have very good reasons for not liking it, you generally think like, no, that's not protected. No, that's that that falls into an exception that should not be protected. And a lot of times, like the answer is like, actually, it is protected. It's all protected. It's sort of a universal thing. It's it's natural to think that speech that you think is like ugly or offensive or even dangerous. That like, no, I don't think that should be protected. So you talked about, you know, there's always a moment when all of us are like, oh, first of all, that can't be covered. That's not right. And so for me, what I immediately think of is hate speech, because in the U.S., we really grapple with how to deal with that. And currently it's protected. But places like the EU and I believe Australia um, have a slightly different approach to hate speech. So the way that France and Germany approach hate speech is that there are types of speech that are illegal. Like there are certain things that you can't say, you can't deny the Holocaust. Uh, there's like certain like racist or anti-Semitic things that you just you can't say. You could be punished for that. That's very much in contrast to the American ethos that like hate speech is protected by the First Amendment. Um, I'm not like a huge fan of hate speech myself, but it is protected. And my my view is that generally it's a good idea to protect hate speech because, I mean, it's just so difficult to draw the line, come up with like a universal definition of what hate is. But the counter argument um, is that there are countries that do ban it and they still continue to function, you know, and all that. You can often argue that like hate speech intimidates the people it's directed towards and thus has a chilling effect on their speech. The fact of the matter is that there are very democratic countries all across the EU who are doing great and speech is robust and they have this sort of different approach to hate speech. You brought up the idea of intimidation and I want to talk about kind of what limits we have allowed here and and how they're working out. So we talked about obscenity, as I said, and, and there's incitement, like direct incitement to violence. This idea of hate speech, it feels general, maybe esoteric uh, when you're not being harmed. But if you're being harmed, it's very real harm and chilling effect. Do you think the U.S. should grapple with our approach to hate speech, uh, the way we grappled with violent speech and, um, and obscene expression? As you said, there are exceptions to the First Amendment. It doesn't guarantee you unlimited free speech in every context without the government telling you to shut up. It, it's not like that. You know, the obvious ones are things like you can't ask someone to commit a crime for you, like pay a hitman and then afterwards say like, well, I was just using my words <laughs> and he went off and murdered somebody. No, no, you can't, like blackmail isn't protected by the First Amendment, perjury isn't child pornography. So there's the the obvious ones. Um, and then there are the things that are, they depend really heavily on context, like obscenity, uh, like true threats to somebody else's life, like incitement to commit acts of violence. All of those things, you always have to like examine everything that happened in like the context of the situation and the speaker and who he was speaking to, all of that comes into play um, when you're trying to see if the First Amendment protects something or not. Um, if I can give you an example, there's a very famous Supreme Court case, Watts v. United States. It was during the Vietnam War. You had an anti-war rally going on on the Washington Mall. And this guy, Watts, young man, like the mic was being passed around. He got it. He made a speech about why he disagreed with the Vietnam War, and he said, um, if I'm drafted, I will not go. Uh, the first bullet I shoot, I guarantee it goes right between the eyes of LBJ. So he said that and was later arrested for threatening the life of the president. He said, this is a violation of my free speech rights. And then the case wound up before the Supreme Court. And what they did was they're like, well, okay, all right, this that is what he said. You have to look at a few things, though, like, Look at where he was, like, oh, he was at a, a rally, a political rally. 
his audience were like these people who were protesting the Vietnam War. How did they react? They laughed when he said what he said. They didn't think he was seriously going to do it. Um, does Watts know LBJ? Is there like a lot of like likelihood that he will run into LBJ? No, no. You know, you look at all these factors. And also he was engaged in like political speech. It was wrapped up in his criticism of the Vietnam War. Um, so they looked at all that and they were like, this is not a true threat on president's life. So the First Amendment does protect his speech. So you've got like something like that. To a certain extent, obscenity is like that too. There's different factors you you balance and that you examine. So all of this is to say, like, if we want to say like hate speech is illegal, then we're going to need to do something like that. Like we're going to have to like have balancing tests and standards. And I have a feeling that most of the people who want to make hate speech illegal don't really want to do that. Right. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> so you, true. Oh, gosh. like, do you really want to like think about like, well, what was the context? Was it said? Was it said in order to criticize hate? Because, <laughs> oh. you know, like uh, the social media platforms like get caught up in this all the time, you know, where private companies, they don't have to abide by the First Amendment. A lot, most of them do say we do not allow hate speech on their platforms. And Every few months, like there's something where it's just like, oh, a bunch of like African-American activists were posting racist things that people sent them and then their accounts were suspended. Y you know, it's just like, yeah, yeah. Unless it's something as simple as like I hired a hitman, which is pretty contextual. I want to jump back real quick. I really didn't think about the fact the Watts v. U.S. case. I kept wondering throughout the last presidency why, you know, it seemed very explicit threats were being made by our former president or by people who follow or support our former president. And it felt like there should be some accountability somewhere for some of that speech. But you're right. There's an establishment that if it's said in a political context, in a context in which it's not likely to occur, that it is political speech and thus protected. That's something that I've been wondering as our speech among each other has gotten more vitriolic and more heated and uh, more threatening. There's a comedian, Kathy Griffith, where she staged like some comedic beheading of Trump. You know, you had a lot of people like saying like, this is, this is a threat on the president's life. And it's just like, well, she is a comedian, and I don't think too many people actually legitimately think that that's like a real outcome that's going to happen. You're right. Like a lot of the speech that came out of uh, people close to the president and the president himself, it's very ugly. And it's not something I think that you should be engaging in when you have that kind of like power. The rule is like basically like, is this a true threat on someone else that they plan on carrying out? It's a little different than the kind of honestly, ugly hyperbole that we hear a lot. And there is that argument that speech can help us understand someone else or help us see someone else's motives. And I'm thinking here as an example of Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, you know, conservative darling who kind of went too far because he was given the podium. I think it was on the Joe Rogan podcast where he kind of went too far and started talking about the positives of pedophilia, I believe. And we got to hear that speech and respond to it and like, whoa, oh, wait, no, <laughs> you know, and and that is information for us that helps us navigate our world. You know, as much as it's hard to hear, there is a value to hearing it in that we can make some decisions. Right. You it's it's out there. You know what I mean? Like, you know what the situation is and you're not just guessing at what somebody's motives or thoughts are. Yeah, exactly. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're discussing the role of the First Amendment and speech in digital spaces with First Amendment expert Lata Nat. I was wondering if you could talk about the role of cancel culture and, and even where I think you wrote about the fact that it can have benefits. Cancel culture is, you know what it is, its essence is it's a large group of people and they are expressing power. And like everything else, that can be a good thing or a really bad thing, right? Generally, like 
you get someone, usually like a public figure, and they say something offensive, then you get a public backlash, and then you get calls to cancel them by like ending their career, maybe boycotting their work, or demanding that their employer fire them or discipline them in some way. There's a couple ways to look at it. Like uh, you have a large number of people exercising their collective power to express their disapproval and change something. You can call that cancel culture. And it can be a horrible life ruining thing. And you can also call that the basis for every movement that's ever happened, right? It's a tool. You can use it in a lot of like good and bad ways. People have said that this, this fear of being canceled, like it can have a chilling effect on speech. Yeah, absolutely. That's just sort of like logical. <laughs> like, of course, if you are afraid of being canceled, you would be less likely to say the thing that you think will, will offend a lot of people. I mean, that's sort of like, yes, that that is true. But I think to me, it matters what you're trying to accomplish with your speech. For instance, if like there's a professor um, who made questionable remarks in the classroom and you try to get that professor canceled. Is the point of this like the professor is uh, indicative of institutional racism in that particular university system and you're taking a stand against that? Or, you know, are you trying to ruin his life? Don't cancel people for petty reasons, I guess. You know, um, a few months ago when people were calling for Governor Cuomo of New York to resign, he said like he would not because I would be bowing to cancel culture. But like the cancellation was based on this report that like his administration hid information about COVID deaths and that people who worked for him, like they, they said they have to lie to the public all the time. And so I feel that maybe people were calling him to resign because uh, they, they were like, well, all this calls into question your ability to govern the state of New York, right? There are other cancellations that I look at. I'm like, what are you doing? Especially like when a famous person gets canceled, uh, a lot of times it's like it angers people, but it's like, well, they're famous. It just made them more famous, et cetera. Like they bounce back. And I'm not saying it's okay to like do petty stuff to famous people, but like when non-famous people get canceled, that is actually pretty life ruining for them. You know, there is to me a difference between like a movement and a mob, you know? Right. Exactly. It's like, there's a reason why I'm doing this. It's certainly not to ruin your life, but it's to get better governance or to get whatever. Right. Whereas, you know, I go back to the one that's held up a lot is uh, just, Sacco and the she tweeted something off color and you know she got on a plane and by the time she landed she had been canceled when for all, all uh, appearances are she didn't mean it the way it was portrayed she lost her job etc and that's just a mob you know not stopping to understand or assess you can still critique be critical of whatever but but is it worth canceling someone over um versus i need to hold you accountable for this we that you need to face consequences for right actions. right and like with a yeah. with a tweet or something like that it's like you know somebody you know should probably be like don't tweet that right <laughs> not it's not like right fired for this <laughs> and um right. never work ever again right exactly so what's in it for like how does it help social media companies or digital media content creation companies to implement First Amendment aspects to their rules. Uh, they don't have to. And then to take it that step further and say, you know, and hate speech problem, we're not going to allow that either. You know, there's some people who think social media is the devil. And there are some people who, you know, think it's taught the world to sing or whatever. <laughs> um, maybe fewer of those than there used to be. I'm neither one of those people. Like, I think they're businesses businesses can have ideals. And, you know, to a certain extent, like, you know, uh, Jack Dorsey of Twitter has always said, like, I'm a big believer in the First Amendment. I want that ethos baked into this. But ultimately, like, you know, they're businesses. They're, there's a bottom line here. Your business model is based on people using your, your app as long as possible. Like every, every minute they spend on the app means that they are seeing things like ads they might buy, you're getting data, et cetera, right? I mean, it's an interesting like fine line, right? Like you, 
you want them to be angry and engaged that way. You know what I mean? Because it's like, if you're seeing like content that you hate, you're going to be there, you're going to be commenting on it. But then there's also like, if the entire site is like, I don't know, say flooded with pornography, like a lot of people might leave. So, okay, we're going to ban that. And like, if you're a company that's getting a lot of backlash because you have a lot of like hate groups that have been using your site, then uh, maybe you, now we're banning hate speech, which is kind of what happened. Like if you track the policies of companies, they change a lot. They change every time there is like a, a scandal or an outcry about something. I mean, the thing that I worry about there actually is that like, I mean, it's fine for a company to change its policies to be like, actually, we've reconsidered and that's not going to work for us. But you notice that it happens when there's a public outrage about something. So that means that people who are famous and well-known, like there might be a public outrage if something they post gets blocked. Yeah, I mean, you also think about the people who are probably being censored every day that you just never hear about or the people who are receiving like a lot of like hate that nobody else ever hears about. Which is why I found it interesting that you had the January 6th insurrection and you had Amazon and we're going to shut down Parler and Facebook and Twitter. We're going to really get serious about banning some of these accounts. I'm usually a very big optimist, but cynical me was like, well, how long is it going to last? Are they going to be back next week? Because that's money, you know? There's this, this part of me that's just like, you have these companies, there's not many of them. And they have so much control over, over so much speech. Do you know what I mean? You have like the power to sort of like obliterate a platform or an organization is, is a little bit disconcerting to me. And that's actually more of an antitrust thing than like a free speech thing, honestly. As someone who's, who studies this field, do you think there's a space for regulation or government intervention? Do you think that that is something that should be a piece of the puzzle? The safe harbor that social media companies have right now, Section 230, which like people criticize all the time, um, you know, it basically says like, well, they can't be sued for what other people post on their platforms. And a lot of people hate that. A lot of people think that gives them too much immunity. Myself, I think that if that didn't exist, a site like Yelp would be, have been sued out of existence a really long time ago. And also Section 230 doesn't, doesn't just apply to the giants. It applies to like anyone who, who has like a, a site that other people can comment on or interact with. And so to me, it's like you get rid of Section 230, like probably Facebook and Google can like handle the lawsuits now. They're huge, but like there will never be anyone else coming up then. And I guess that's my... My idea of where I think government regulation would be handy, you just have a few companies who basically control all of the social media. A few years ago, um, I was invited to speak at like a cannabis conference. A lot of cannabis people use like social media to advertise. But because cannabis is such a strange substance, like the law like is different in each state and federal law doesn't allow it. They all use Facebook to advertise. And they're like, yeah, you never know when Facebook is going to take down your ad. Like you change a comma and then the ad gets accepted. But for whatever reason, on Tuesday nights, it'll go down. They sink a lot of money into it. And they're all just like, it's terrible. And it's just like, well, why can't you use something else is what I said. And they're like, there is nothing else. You know what I mean? If you want to reach people, that is what you have. And First Amendment, it exists to protect speakers, right? And it exists to make sure like speakers can get their voice out. And it was kind of designed for a world where like, you had a printing press in your basement and, you know, it was if somebody destroyed your printing press. That news was never getting out anywhere. Right. Whereas today, like it's it's not hard to speak usually. Right. Like you can get up on a platform, you can put something out on like Twitter or Facebook or whatever. It's not hard to get that out. But it's attention that's like this really expensive and rare commodity. It's attention that's very precious. That makes it so that the power of Facebook and Google and other social media is honestly like 
it might be less about like what they'll allow on their platforms and more about like, where do they direct your attention? Because none of that is accidental. Like a lot of that is based on algorithms. These are all designed to keep you on their sites as long as possible. And so I guess that's like a, a question that I think people should like think about more when they're thinking about threats to speech. It's a hard market to suddenly like enter as a new player. And that just actually has an effect on like the kind of public conversations we have and like what we know about. And I can't help but think as you talk, you know, we we established antitrust laws 100 years ago, 100 plus years ago. We established, you know, um, no fraud in advertising laws and rules for how advertising should. And certainly, as you say, you know, those were for a different time. And yet the the spirit was there as we've moved into digital spaces, there doesn't seem to be any hold of those concepts in the current context. I mean, you bring up an interesting point, like about no fraud in ads and things like that. Another limit you could have on speech. It is harder today just because there's so much more content. I think that there are laws that can help that don't necessarily like violate the First Amendment. You know, the Honest Ads Act, which was basically just like, if you're going to have a political ad on Facebook, like, there has to be some disclosure about where it's from. And that's just helpful. Like more information is helpful. Like Twitter had that like fact check thing where I thought that was like a very good idea where, you know, if Trump tweeted something, they would like add their own thing saying like, actually, that's not true. You should probably look here. And I love that because that is like actually just speech answering speech, you know? Yes. I, I loved it too. It was, I'm like, this is great. Yeah. At the end of the day, that's kind of where I live and I live also. And so let's educate people and let's like, let's educate people on the attention economy that you talk about. Are you aware of how uh, social media and digital media algorithms are nudging you in these directions? So the last thing I want to ask you about is uh, because I loved it is your article on whether AI speech is protected. I would love to kind of get your sense of where speech generated by artificial intelligence falls in this whole conversation. I'm so glad you asked about that, actually. I, it's the kind of nerdy, like, niche topic I love. When it comes to, like, computer code, I think that it would depend a lot on, like, the nature of it. There's some code that you could say, like, well, that's expression, you know? Like, I'm using my code to create this beautiful virtual world that, you know, expresses something to you. And then there's some code that it's like, well, I'm using this code to make sure that your internet like shuts down. That to me is less like speech and more like conduct. Like it is an action more than it is an expression. I, I absolutely do think that we will approach a time where AI has the ability to speak just as well as we do. In fact, we might've already like shot right past that. When it comes to like, say like AI being able to just like tweet things out, which, you know, like there are already articles that are written by artificial intelligence and things like that, mostly like sports pieces, but you know, I mean, it's definitely possible. The First Amendment doesn't necessarily say that, like, you know, all human speech is protected. It doesn't draw that distinction. If you ever had, like, the Supreme Court looking at this, I could imagine, like, um, like a court saying, like, look, if we give AI First Amendment rights, like, AI is just, you know, just given how much better it is than us and how, like, how good it is at crafting just the right message and disseminating it so widely, like, it'll just be disastrous. It'll just be just horrible for civilization. So I could understand if you're just like, you know what, like that's just too big a risk and we can't take it. But flip side of that is like I was saying earlier, like the First Amendment doesn't just protect our right to speak. It also protects our right to hear and receive information. So we wouldn't really be looking at like the rights of robots. It's like the rights of you and me to like read that article that AI produced. You could see AI speech like, you know, you could see it being like 
world ruining in some way but you could also see like <laughs> yeah thanks terminator yeah, yeah. right <laughs> or maybe maybe in like some utopia you get to this point where ai is like giving you information that you wouldn't have had otherwise but like what your local government is doing that directly impacts you you know what i mean like you can you can imagine some cool things yeah um that would be important to protect uh so i guess we need to keep an open mind and like an open open, open eye yeah sure <laughs> We need to keep an eye on it. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) And I was thinking as you talked, and you can tell me if I'm completely off base because I'm not the lawyer in this conversation, but I was like, AI is created by humans. So you could, could you make an argument that it represents human speech in some way because it represents the biases and mentality of the human who created it in some ways or the humans who created it? At a certain point, you can. It's like, well, you know what? He created this bot and this bot has been doing this, which isn't really artificial intelligence, but you know what I mean. But then, like, with the kind of AI that uh, people much smarter than me are, like, working on and dreaming up, you have machine intelligence. You have, like, machines that learn and basically have the capacity to become so different and so much more than, like, what they were programmed to be on their own. Then I think you have more of an argument that it's like, is this even connected to a human being anymore? And this is its own thing, you know? Thank you to my guest, Lata Not, First Amendment Fellow at the Freedom Forum and Deputy Director of Policy at State Voices. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.